Coming to you from the mountain fortress of pop culture. You're listening to Time to Talk. Artists seem to get in the way of the music. Get out of the way of the music. Yes, you are in the fortress of pop culture where we do everything in our power to preserve everything that has been good, that has been light and that has been joyous in our world previously. But today, this is the podcast that we probably didn't need to have because what else is there to say about this one? It's recognised as the biggest selling album of all time And every normal person born from 1982 onwards has heard this one multiple times. It's Thriller. It scared the absolute stuffing out of me as a young lad. It gave me some serious nightmares. And of course, when I became a parent, I made sure my children were also petrified by watching the video clip well and truly before they were mature enough to make any sense of it at all. What I love about Thriller, it has just nine tracks and seven of them were released as singles. Every single song on this album is single-worthy. What I don't like about Thriller? The 25th Anniversary Edition. Terrible. Tacky. Rubbish. It was like they took a crayon and drew over the Mona Lisa. Awful. You could literally hear the early stages of Kanye West's breakdown on Billie Jean. Terrible thing. But the original work... It was just so sonically satisfying. I could not possibly gush too much for this one. It is genuinely everything that was light and exciting about my childhood. And I can confirm, unlike most people on our panel today, that it is true. The school playgrounds at the time were filled with little ones reenacting the choreography. We have an awesome panel today with a surprise guest. Let's start with the man who is up way past his bedtime, Lee. How are you, I'm, Lee? I'm fine. I'm literally, I literally resemble one of the zombies from the video. Yeah. <laughs> and also I look like the dead. So, you know. Oh, you do not. But listen, if you do need to have a doze between baby be mine and human nature, that's absolutely allowed. You can do oh, that. Oh, so kind. Lee, can I also tell you something? I'm seriously considering becoming a Michael Jackson impersonator, but I've got really mixed feelings about it. On one hand, you get to wear a really cool white glove, but on the other hand, you don't. <laughs> yeah, I get oh, it, yeah. See, now you really didn't help me with that. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll let you walk really straight bad. Do you know how hard it is to make Michael Jackson jokes anymore? Because there are only about two categories, and two of them are not okay, so I had to go to the third one. We, we do love our Chad, but this is a young man who wasn't even born when Michael was laying down the vocals for Thriller. G'day, Chad. No, no, but, you know, it. and I was going to, I was, I'm going to say it's daunting to do an album like this that is so respected, the best-selling album of all time, and it's like it's almost sacrilege to even critique it in any way, so I wasn't sure, but I was listening to it today, and I'm, I'm happy to be here, so... Well, there's no pressure, and I felt the same sort of pressure, until Pez confirmed that he could join us. Now, Pez Jax is a writer and author, and he's a Michael Jackson maniac. Oh, sorry, um, he's a Michael Jackson fan. (laughs) I mean, sorry, fan, fan. (laughs) 
He's Dark based side. in London. <laughs> he released his first book, Off the Wall from the Beginning, Brick by Brick, in 2016. And that one charted Michael Jackson's rise from the lead singer of the Jackson 5 up to the release and success of Off the Wall. And um, he also released a follow-up book called The Story of History, which I rant on about too much, but it's fairly incredible, I must say. G'day, Pez, how are you? Yeah, good. It's quite late here now. It's about uh, quarter past midnight, but we're awake and we're alive, so that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, <laughs> we've got we've got two Englishmen up past midnight. This is really not good. <laughs> it's dedication. It's... We're we're nothing but dedicated. Pez, because you are, you've met Michael Jackson. Let's start off. What's one interesting thing that you can tell us about Michael Jackson that most people wouldn't know? So I think a really interesting fact is that he was once meant to meet the Queen in 2006. So he was in London for the World Music Awards. He was meant to go to the Casino Royale premiere for James Bond. And the Queen was going to turn up and do a lineup where everybody shakes hands with her and she goes along. And she knew he was going to be there and they were sort of, you know, reconnecting, as it were, King and Queen. Um, But Michael got so distressed uh, preparing to meet the Queen that he ended up standing her up, so he didn't attend. What? I would have thought the end of that story was the other way around. <laughs> no, I mean, I wonder if part of it was, you know, I can stand up the Queen of England. Um, but no, apparently he, he got very distressed getting ready um, and f- not feeling confident enough to be in front of the Queen, and he stood her up. Well, on behalf of the Queen, I can only say, oh my. <laughs> I can't believe it. I've never heard that story. That's amazing. Wow. You would and Michael Jackson, he he loved his dalliances with royalty, so that's quite a surprise. Yeah, he met Diana, right? There's a great video on YouTube of that. Mm. Yeah, they they met uh, just before the bad tour and uh, he gave her one of the tour jackets which she wore um quite a lot when she went to theme parks and stuff. There's a few great photos of her wearing the bad tour jacket. Didn't she? Didn't wasn't she at, at one of his concerts and and he sang "Dirty Diana" at her or like towards her and you can see see her kind of grinning at it or have I made that up? He said he said that he took "Dirty Diana" out of the show out of respect for her and she said, "Oh no, I want you to perform it." But then when the Bad in Wembley DVD came out, it included. Dirty Diana, even, and Diana was in the audience. So I don't know if that was some creative editing or he just for, forgot what happened. Ooh, awkward. <laughs> so, Pez, we're going to be relying on you for a lot of the information here today. And I know that this is one of the few albums you haven't written a, a book on, but is it true that they went through around 800 songs to whittle it down just to nine tracks? Is that is that true? Uh, I would say Alejandro is probably quite a reach, but there was definitely, you know, over 100 songs were sort of put on the table for Thriller. I think at that time, you know, Quincy was working with so many people that he just sort of put the word out, you know, I'm doing the next Michael record, who's got stuff? Um, and they had everybody come in to, to kind of put things down for that that album. But yeah, it eventually ended up being these just nine incredible tracks, which are almost like, you know, nine pillars of music i'll probably say eight because i'll tell you which one i don't like shortly <laughs> but um it's got to be you know, the paul mccartney one doesn't it oh okay well i'll say seven then because i forgot about that one um, <laughs> i love it it's just that i know so many fans diss that song and it's not fair it's not fair <laughs> that's track three so we'll get there <laughs> 
it was a real cattle call, though, wasn't it? They were, they were like, and it reminds me so much of the way Madonna and Kylie and other artists release today, and they're often criticised for it. You, you put out the call, you say, we're, we're doing a piece of work, give us your best, and then they sort through it. And, and um, But at the very same time, it's really important with this project to mention that Jackson himself is writing like a madman and bringing things out from his vaults and writing new materials. So it wasn't just about, um, you know, getting everybody else's best work together. Yeah, and I think that's the first time we kind of saw the Quincy and Michael um, internal friction um, where Michael would put something forward and Quincy would say no and then Michael would push back because obviously with Off the Wall, Michael was still new to this this kind of solo experience and work working on his own music. Um, but for example, Quincy didn't like Billie Jean um, and didn't want to put Billie Jean on the record. And, mm. you know, when you think <laughs> what Billie Jean became, uh, thank God Michael fought back on that and said, no, I want that on the record. Um, yes. So I think that's really where the, where the friction started. And then obviously when you get to bad, it's just sort of, that's Michael Jackson. You know, Quincy's kind of there, but that's Michael. But yeah, I think Thriller's really that kind of, that turning point for him musically where he said, I'm taking control of this. I can't wait to talk a little bit more about that creative collaboration. But it what it became was much bigger than even Michael Jackson himself. It really did. It means so much. Lee, what, what does this album mean to you? And was it a, a big part of childhood? And I mean, this was a soundtrack for, for a lot of our lives, wasn't it? Mm, oh, yeah, definitely. I um, in, in, Back in the day, with my, my I'm going to say my, my early adolescence, um, we only got albums for birthdays and Christmases, so we we didn't go and buy music in between. So I think it had come out, and I was, and it was, I think I got it for my birthday, um, and I couldn't wait to get it. And the gatefold sleeve, and the all the because um, there were like cartoons written on the the notes, wasn't there that Michael Jackson had done, um, and it was just fascinating. Um, and yeah, like you say, it's like um, I like to think of it as like the album that he did before he kind of started to go a little bit strange with the whole kind of image and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I still have my vinyl album. Can't play it, but I still have it. I love the fact that I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Thriller was one of the last or if not the last single released. So just when you think this album couldn't get any bigger, it just... It gets bigger and bigger, and it was everywhere for at least a year. Um, I remember going to lots of kids' parties around that time, and we were just jumping around to this. This is what it was all about. Hey, Chad, what's it mean to you as a slightly younger man than the rest of us? I I feel I when I heard I love doing these podcasts because we get to inevitably hear the whole thing in one sitting before we record and yeah. i always think that's so special to give an album its due in that way to really just sit there and just take it all in from beginning to end without skipping around and to me what just kept coming to me was that this was like magic captured like lightning in a bottle mm. so that I, I mean you really hear that in the album there's just something that's you know there's great music and then there's that little something special that rides right on top of it all the way and it's just like a magic. It's indescribable. But um, one thing I'll say for this album is that uh, I, you know, for, I don't think it's a perfect album. I think it's a little uneven personally, 
but um, I don't even know if it's my favorite MJ album, but if you could ever make a case for an album potentially changing the world, I feel like the the impact and the reach that this particular album had, you could make that case. I love that expression, magic in a bottle, because there were so many other elements. Then besides the whole little petri dish of the creative process that they were going through, on a broader context, the music industry was in a real slump at the time. Music wasn't as, you know, the 70s had been and gone. It was in a slump. Sales were low, right? And and he was really disappointed about Off the Wall, disturbingly so, by the way. If you read the psychology behind that, it's, it's fascinating how much he thought Off the Wall deserved more recognition. But thank God he got that kick in the guts, even though you could debate... <laughs> It was a very successful album, but he felt it was a kick in the guts. If it wasn't for that, he wouldn't have had the fire in the belly to do what he did. I think it's true, Pez, that he wrote, and I think it's on some piece of furniture that they've actually sold for a lot of money since his death, that he wrote something along the lines of, I will make the biggest selling album of all time or something. He was It was a self-affirmation, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, he was forever sort of writing these notes to himself and encouraging himself to have the biggest selling album of all time. Um, and he did it. You know? And I think by all accounts, I think there's a, there's a side of him that was very much like, I'm confident I can do this. And then there was the other side that was like, oh, my God, I've done this. What happens next? Yes. Um, because I think uh, you mentioned it earlier, Thriller became so big that it almost became bigger than him. Mm. Um, and you know, I know he used to say, I want to beat Thriller. I want to beat Thriller. And I just used to think, but you know, Thriller's bigger than, than you are now. It's, it's, it's huge. I don't think anyone expected it to sell as many as it did. And so it's kind of a moment in time that can never be recreated or recaptured by anybody, including him. He was a black artist mainstreaming himself too, even though there was some controversy around that with Billie Jean, which we're happy to talk about. There was also the fact that he made these mini films to promote the music and they became epic and products in themselves, literally products. I believe that's to this day, Thriller is one of the biggest selling singles or video singles ever, if not the biggest one. There was so much at play here. And he also rejuvenated, like he brought excitement back to the music industry all of a sudden. So much going on, right, Lee? Mm, yeah, definitely. He was, I, I, I don't really remember very much about him prior to Thriller. I kind of was kind of aware of Off the Wall, um, but not so much. And kind of sort of vaguely remembered the Jackson 5, although I think that was kind of more nostalgic rather than actually being there um but yeah he was like possibly one of the kind of my generation's biggest pop stars that kind of like that uber pop star that's like so massive that um it eclipses everything else um and you're definitely right about the video clips he kind of like um pioneered that kind of epic film mini film of of portraying his his music which was amazing what propelled this album into the stratosphere is the fact that there were so many firsts, so many firsts. Completely. And I think, you know, when we look today and we talk about revol revolutionising the music industry, you know, and we look at some of today's artists and they're compared to Michael, I think what Michael did with Thriller was so many, as you say, firsts and so many changes that we're just not seeing that with today's artists. They can't do those firsts because they've already been done. 
So that's right. just what, again, put him sort of professionally on another level. So the album and him together just just exploded. He looked amazing at that time too. He was he was debonair. He was sophisticated. He was cool. Everyone wanted to look like Michael Jackson. The colour of his skin didn't matter at all. He was just such a classy young man. Chad, you release music. Has he had an influence on you in terms of music? Oh my God. To the point where I had a, a life-size cardboard cutout. <laughs> my favourite era is... is from from thriller into like the early 90s through through dangerous but yeah and then there was the whole um reconciling with leaving neverland and um kind of believing some of the accusations and it's it's been a tough journey and i try to not to take you know this stuff too seriously but as you know like with madonna especially and michael jackson i i super do take it seriously and am super passionate about it so it uh, affects me deeply, and um, you know all this stuff with him coming out has affected me deeply. And the cardboard cutout went into the closet, and I just kind of had to take a break for a while. Pez, when I look at the album cover for Thriller, it's such a mixed emotion for me. First of all, as a as an album cover, it's brilliance personified. It's just brilliance. But then I look at him and look at what he was and all the potential he had and that he was meeting. Do you look at it in with a degree of sadness? Because I just think he had it all. I look at that album cover and think you had it all. You had looks, you had talent, you had the world at your feet. And where did it all go so wrong? No, not at all, actually. I love to think of Michael in, in eras. And, you know, most of the fans think of Michael when they talk about him and his music and his life. They talk about it in eras. One of the mm -hmm. first questions you get asked is, what's your favorite era? You know, what's your favorite album? Yeah. And one of the things I love most about Michael is the way he evolved and changed every single era. So no two eras were the same. And I think... Each person looks at a different era and that's the Michael they relate to for whatever that reason is, whether it's musically, whether it's image, whether it's personality, they relate to that era. And so I think what's so fascinating about him is that he was able to evolve as a person and appeal to different groups of people all over the world. For me, I have to admit, I look at the album cover and I get really excited because I know what it represented at the time. I also find it quite tragic in a lot of ways as well. Let's go through track by track, shall we? And want to be starting something is a track, as I understand it, that he had recorded quite some time earlier, if not around off the wall. And he sung it into a tape recorder as he tended to do. And then he made a demo of it in his own studio. I think some of his siblings even did little instruments for it. And then he brings it, apparently, sheepishly, to Quincy Jones. He's embarrassed a little bit to show this to Quincy Jones. Isn't that remarkable when you think of this song? And apparently it goes from there. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, he recorded that around the same time as Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. He did the two demos sort of side by side. And you can kind of see the similarities in the really long titles mm -hmm. and also the, the, the percussion sounds. Um, but yeah, he, he kind of brought this one to the table. And what a great way to open a record. You know, it comes in with that dun, dun, dun. And you just think you've finished off the wall, you've finished the disco sound, and then you move on to Thriller and you just get those those three hits and the record kicks off. Um, 
not personally not one of my favorite songs <laughs> um i just think it's 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 a bit overdone um but you know as a as a song itself on the album it's great hey lee i've got to ask you what on earth is he saying i'm going to save on the price of muscova i'm going to save on the price of muscova and <laughs> what is muscova <laughs> and why are you going to save on the price of it is he not is he not saying mumba say mumba say mumba <laughs> Mamakusa. That is slightly better than what you said. I, I... Well, <laughs> this is very African. That's what I know. I, I assume it might be African uh, language, actually, I, because the whole vibe has this, like, you're in a... It reminds me of one of the scenes from Black or White. It's just very tribal or something. But I always... You have to sing something, so I'm going to save on the price of Muscova. What is Muscova? <laughs> it's, um, it's actually a sample um, from a song oh. called Soul... I'm going to have to pronounce this right. Soul Makasa oh. um, by a Colombian uh, saxophonist. And it came out in the 70s. And Michael took that, um, that sort of part and then and changed it slightly. And I think they had an out-of-court settlement over it after he did oh. it. And then the, uh, the saxophonist came back and sued Rihanna when she sampled it on uh, Don't Stop the Music. So it was actually taken from, from another artist. Oh, wow. Jeez. Oh, it's it's and Chad, it's got this incredible breakdown, which I think is yes. brave. Um, it goes like I think it's three quarters of the way through, where he just it's quite extended for a single. It really is. It's like an extended oh breakdown. It and and again, looking back, it's so easy to go. Well, that's the track, but actually, at the time, it would have been quite brave to go. We're going to have thirty to forty seconds of breakdown here, so that it's a danceable song. It's not just a singable song. Amazing. Right, I love it. I mean, it's such a great album opener, I feel, just because it has that exciting energy. And it, I'm attracted to it because it's one of the more upbeat ones, which I always kind of gravitate to. Mm. And it's one of the more upbeat ones that's not like constantly still played all the time, even though it was a single. So I kind of love it for that reason. And I just think um, I'm big on sequencing too, like album sequencing. Oh, and yeah. I just think it's just a good opener. I don't think this... I, I do have other issues with the sequencing, just personally. Um, again, it's so difficult to... Would you have started the album, album with this way. track? But not with this track. That's all I want to say. I think this is like the perfect opener. Which is interesting when you think about it, that he did write it at the same time as Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, which is heavily, you know, got heavy disco sounds to it. But the right. two, they do come out really different. Um, and if you listen to the demos, again, they both sound very similar, but the finished product, they're so different. They wouldn't work next to each other on a record. Sometimes amateurs know best, and the lack of professionalism is all you'll hear on the Time to Talk show. Join Tim and his panel of guests as they wade their way through a range of news, music, and pop culture treats. Time to Talk, the show hosted by amateurs for unprofessional listeners. Everything with that record was, let's do it different. Let's tear up the rule book and create something different. Um, and as you know, it paid off in, in the finished, it paid off in the finished product. But, you know, I think that is mostly a testament uh, in terms of sound to Bruce Swedean, who uh, was the engineer for the record. And he put what he liked to call sonic personality on it. And he just sort of changed the way in which you hear 
a Michael Jackson record. And that's why every Michael Jackson record has that kind of polish on it, um, courtesy of Bruce, because he just did such a phenomenal job. Well, he is an unsung hero because you can tell they've taken each instrumentation on every track, done it individually, but then whatever they've done with the mixing, it would blow my mind if I actually knew for sure. But I can tell that they've they've gone to great lengths with the mixing. So we're, we're leaving this track behind with Tim still not understanding what that lyric is. So I'm going to stick with Gonna Save on the Price of Muscova. And I will continue singing that, unless anyone can correct me before we move to track two. It, oh, I'm going to correct you. It says here, Mama say, Mama saw, Mama kusa. Well, that's not what he says yes. at all. Mama say, Mama saw, what? Mama, Mama kusa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and do you know what? Hard. Weirdly, and I've never heard this before, <laughs> apparently, and, and Pez might be able to clarify this, he originally wrote it for Latoya. Um, about her relationships with her sister-in-laws, but then he ended up recording it. That is weird. That is a weird story. Wow. What was that? Sorry, I missed the, that bit. That, she, that he originally wrote it for Latoya about her troubled relationships with her sister-in-law. Oh. Oh, I'm not sure that he'd wasted his talents on that, to be honest. But, you know. <laughs> That's so <laughs> rude. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to be corrected, but... Wow. Interesting little tidbit. Maybe somebody can leave a comment about that. Baby Be Mine. Now, again, it just drops into this otherworldliness. I don't know what else to say. I just You're taken away here. And it's a great tempo, this track, for number two. That's why I'm interested to hear what Chad has to say about sequencing because I, I love the sequencing of this album. It takes you on a, a beautiful yes. but subtle ups and downs. And this is a great track too, Chad, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... To me, there's two sides to this album. There's one that's more R&B down tempo that feels a little bit disjointed from the newer, more cutting edge dance pop sound um, that almost has one of its feet still in off the wall in, in just my impressions of it. And this kind of falls into that category, but it's one of my two favorite in that category of like the more down tempo songs. And I think it's a great follow up to like an album opener because you kind of open big and then hang back a little. And uh, then I think we'll talk the next track. I think it just kind of stalls because you put two slow songs in a row. And it's not a fan favorite. It's not a favorite of mine, the third one. Lee? Sorry, I was trying to listen to it because I have absolutely no recollection of it whatsoever. Huge Michael Jackson fan. Um, I can't remember it at all. So obviously that says a lot about it. Was it kind of a... <laughs> was it... <laughs> but I couldn't get to it before you said Lee. I was going, oh, press it, press it quick. Um, um, okay. so we can pass by Lee. Pass by me on that one, yes. <laughs> and I will listen to it now. There's no shame in it. You've got a lot of music in your head, Lee. It's hard to keep track sometimes, isn't it? And, um, Pez, what can you tell us about this one? Uh, this is actually my favourite song on Thriller. Um, mm. I just I think it's got such a great vibe to it. I don't, you know, it's not even one of the best songs he's ever done, but I just I adore it. Um, but funnily enough, apparently he didn't like it. Um, he. Michael didn't like Baby Be Mine at all, and it was his least favourite on the record, wow. um, purely because of the way uh, the song was sort of structured and the progression between notes. He just didn't like it. And if you listen to the demo, you can hear in the demo that he's really trying to, you know, jump between those notes and he's kind of struggling to do so. Um, but, you know, they made it sound great. Um, 
And Rod Temperton wrote that song and also wrote a song called uh, Spice of Life, which he gave to the group Manhattan Transfer, which pretty much instrumentally and structure-wise is exactly the same. Uh, the Girl Is Mine is track three. This is the only one I ever hear criticism of, and I don't understand it. I mean, Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson, I've heard this silly story, which cannot be true, that Quincy Jones wanted him to work with Paul McCartney, and he was going to tell Michael you should work with Paul McCartney. And then by coincidence, in inverted commas, Jackson's already in talks or working with Paul McCartney. What a load of rubbish. That's an impossible coincidence. Uh, but nonetheless, they've worked together, and I believe that they had more than one track, Pez. I can't remember what the second one was, but they've. Uh, this is the one that made it to the album. Am I on the right track there, or have I got some of my facts a little bit wrong? No, pretty much on the right tracks. I mean, they did four four projects together. So the uh -huh. first one was Girlfriend for Off oh, the Wall. Space, Space as well, sorry. Yep, I yeah. remember. So, so you've got Girlfriend for Off the Wall, which Paul McCartney submitted to Quincy for Michael to record, and Michael turned it down. Paul recorded it with Wings, and then Michael recorded it for Off the Wall anyway. Um, then, obviously, you've got The Girl Is Mine, uh, Say, 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 and they did a song together called The Man, um, which is, you know, <laughs> pretty forgettable by most standards. Um, but The Girl Is Mine, you know, what I love about it, I'll start with what I love about it, um, is, you know, I think I love the fact that they're both singing about a girl, but there's no identity to the girl. We don't know what race she is. And I think that's really fascinating for the time in which the song came out as well. You mm. know, you've got a, a black guy and a white guy singing about a woman. And, we, you know, whichever race she is, it could be you know societally quite controversial and i love that sort of fact that it's it's left open um and also you know the fact that there was this crossover in audiences between you know the the white rock genre with paul mccartney and then the kind of r&b with with michael um what i don't love about that song is it's just naff um i'll stop it <laughs> it's romantic I mean, it's romantic uh, look, if you want to have a candle, if you want to have a candlelit dinner to that, don't let me stop you. But it just—I just find it kind of—it does this thing where it builds and builds, and then it just drops off a cliff, and then it builds mm. again and it drops. And yeah, it's just kind of like it's just there and it's just hovering. The vocals in this are amazing, though. He uh, Paul McCartney sounds. I think more like he did with Wings, I suppose. Uh, Michael's vocals are, are lovely on this. I do want to know, Lee, what the hell is a doggone girl? Is it that's it, is it not just like an American phrase for like she's mine? God damn it! That <laughs> like kind the of damn girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, she's that's... not like a dog. She's not like a you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God. Yeah, doggone. It's it's okay, like so the a God swear word. Girl is mine. Yeah, would that yeah. would that be fair? The goddamn. Yeah, but not. Yeah. So, in other words, Lee, they might have originally had that. If if we could find the original lyrics, maybe Paul McCartney had the goddamn girl is mine, and Michael scribbled it out and went, "No, you can't say that." Because <laughs> he was still a Jehovah's Witness at the time, wasn't he? So perhaps <laughs> yeah. he did. Didn't perhaps stop him like... from recording Thriller, though, did it? Oh, but there's interesting stuff about Thriller and yeah. the whole Jehovah's Witness thing, which we'll get to. But yeah, it's. I, it's a pleasant song. It's not one of my favourites. Um, the video, are they like hobos or travelling musicians on a That's cart? That's in Say Say Say. Oh. Is that in Say Say Did they do a video for this? 
No, so they didn't do a video for this, but um, it was kind of it was the first single for the for the album, and um, somebody what? I used to somebody I used to work with in a in a recording studio in London told me that his his dad owned a record store, and when the girl is mine came out, um, you know the Sony or CBS Records rep came in and said, oh, you know, do you want the new Michael Jackson record? He's like, no, not with that song on it. Nobody wants that. <laughs> so they said they said to him, look, you know, j- just take take bulk quantities of, of this Thriller LP and if it doesn't sell after Christmas we'll just come back and we're going to dispose of them anyway if it doesn't oh. sell it's it's not looking like it's going to take off with this girl is mine thing and then obviously the next song was Billie Jean and pff, the rest is history <laughs> this is single number one see there's because they released I'm correct I know seven of the nine were released yes I don't even know the order so this is this is single number one wannabe was a single too so you had The Girl Is Mine was the first, then Billie Jean, Beat It, Wanna Be Starting Something, Human Nature, PYT, Thriller. I think the the reason it was probably first single was Paul McCartney. You know, you have an icon like Paul and an icon like Michael. What could go wrong, right? But um, they don't have chemistry on the track. Oh, and stop. I, here's the thing. I don't like any of the songs where Michael's asserting himself as a womanizer because it's not believable at all to me. So whenever I hear that, I'm just like, it's not authentic. And so this one, Pretty Young Thing, The Lady of My Life, I just don't buy those tracks as authentic coming from Michael. Not saying that, you know, I just, it just doesn't, I mean, it doesn't mesh with anything else that I know about him. Not saying that he was gay or what he was, but he was not the most heteronormative guy. I mean, that is really interesting because like you said, I think, when you think of Michael ja- Michael Jackson, I don't think of him as like a sexual person. I kind of think of right. him as asexual, as just like yeah. as Michael Jackson. Is he, you know, I don't associate him with like Madonna. I don't say yeah. yeah. It's just that's what I'm saying. It's, it's like, like a Disney uh, character, isn't he? He's like it's like I've got to do this because this is what's socially you know acceptable, or this is what's going to make me look cool to people. Is that I'm like a womanizer, right? But mm. no. <laughs> But he wasn't a womanizer in his real life. We know that. I mean, he had girlfriends, whatever, but he was not that kind of. Uh... <laughs> Pez, this must be angering up your blood. <laughs> not at all. You know, I mean, look, people have their opinions on him and I can't change that. If that's what they're going to have, that's what they're going to have. You know, he was romantic, though, Pez. And that, that I put this song like I actually take Chad's point on things like Pretty Young Thing where and and the one where he's. Um, in bad, where he's stalking that poor girl down the back alley. I, I, I don't buy those <laughs> yeah. two things. But in this one, this is sort of saying that you know he's he's romancing someone rather than sexually harassing them for a change. I mean, I think with the girl is mine. I think he wrote that song uh, thinking I'm going to write a song that's going to be a duet with Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. and that's why it came out the way it came out. Because you know, I don't see it as some of Michael's best work, and I don't really feel it's a song um, that's strong enough uh, mm. to come from him. But I really think he wrote that thinking, this is a Paul McCartney duet, it's got to sound a certain way. Um, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Do you have any favourite lines out of his pairs by any chance? Um, yeah, the <coughs> last line, whatever that is, because then we move into Thriller. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. For all those people who are um, advocates for this song, I stand up for you. I think it's sweet and, yeah. Um, so to finish that whole thought about sequencing, I feel like this is the first misstep the album takes, 
And it's because it's like the second kind of slow or not fan favorite song in a row. Yeah. And it just kind of, I don't know, it just does something where it kind of is a misstep. Hmm. And then and then right on the heels of it, he packs Thriller, Beat It, Billie Jean, like all in a row. And then it's like three more down tempo songs like that drives me crazy. Yeah. Anyway, if, if there is a song that's that that's plopped in unceremoniously, it's probably is that. But maybe he didn't want to interrupt track four through to you know eight. To be honest, he just wanted it to be high energy. Maybe that was the logic. We do move into track four, Thriller. Does every would it, would all would it be fair to say that all of you on the line, if you heard that first half second of the door creaking open or the crypt creaking open, whatever it is, would be able to instantly recognise Thriller? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> undoubtedly. Of course, it's incredible. Like th- that says so much that not even it's not even music; it's a sound effect, and instantly you know what it is. Well, to start with, Thriller was originally called Starlight. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the chance to hear the demo for Thriller, but it's, it's actually quite odd. was. Yeah, and it just you know it it amazes me of what the album could have been had it been Starlight. I just don't think it would have had the same. I think people would have seen it like Starlight Express. I don't know if that came before or after, but you know, I just don't think it would have had the same the same ring to it. But you know, I think Thriller is one of those those songs that kind of unites everybody mm-hmm. um, on Halloween. And what I think is great about that song in particular, especially if you look at you know, sort of everything that's been going on um, against Michael's name the last few years in particular. This that you know there was obviously that that movie that happened in the, in the March and then by the time we get to October, Thriller's back on the radio you know and Thriller is in everybody's household, which is just a testament to that song and how it's just impossible to ignore. It's it's literally changed Halloween. You know, you, you I hear I think of Halloween and I think of Thriller. It's unbelievable, isn't it, Lee? It is. It's like it's like one of the most defining songs of you know the millennium (laughs) i have i have my own thriller story i when i was at school and we did music lessons at the end of every term we had to sing a song as like um as to get a grade so most people sang like hymns from a hymn book um i sang this i sang michael jackson's thriller (laughs) and i did the rap bit as well and there was no music because the music teacher said (laughs) i don't know how to i don't know how to play it so away you go um yeah and when i finished there was just silence in the classroom (laughs) and i was so embarrassed i sat back down and cracked my head on the table oh no yeah, so I would have been clapping for you, Lee. <laughs> Woo! Um, yeah, I love. Yeah, I love. It. I can still. I can still do all the Vincent Price bit. Um, I love the. You know, everywhere you go, um, when that song comes on, everybody thinks that they can do the dance, don't they? They do the whole um, hand thing and the kind of side to side. Um, yeah, it's amazing, and it's amazing how kids now find it and become obsessed with it it's like one of those songs that's timeless that's a horrible story you've just told there lee i feel (laughs) i want to go back in time and and you put my arm around you it's just horrible but can i tell everyone to to you know things come full circle in life you've got to be patient lee i can now announce to a huge podcast audience that you have a fantastic character actor voice you can do voices like nobody else so the vincent price thing 
before we finish up the thriller track, I'm going to come to you if you've got the will and the courage, and there won't be silence at the end, I promise, and you can okay. do the Vincent Price. By the way, Vincent Price, stupid old nasty man that he was, if you read his life story, he he got paid a 1000 bucks or so for this piece. <clears throat> he obviously does, for those that don't know, the, the, the voice part um, in this track. He got paid around a 1000 and then when the album became a cultural revolution... You know, he went everywhere whinging and moaning about how little he was paid. It's like, grow up, you stupid man. You get paid a certain price. You sign a contract. You do it. That's it. And if you wanted to have your remuneration based on how successful it was, you should have written into the contract. Silly old man. Well, you'd think, you'd think with a surname price that he would have negotiated a better one, <laughs> wouldn't you? Vincent <laughs> cheap price. Yeah. Uh, and Chad, what's Thriller mean to you? Well, as we've touched on, this song is so um, incredibly linked to its music video counterpart, right? And the music videos between Off the Wall and Thriller are night and day in terms of budget and concept and taking music video to an art form. Uh, I think, you know, obviously Michael is one of the premier music video artists in all of history, and it's probably top music video of all time i mean i i can't think of a music video that's bigger and more well known and more celebrated and um i know they released it in theaters not that long ago and it had this like incredible detailed restoration from the film elements and it looked like you know the most amazing incredible quality you could ever imagine and then you go on youtube and it's like this terrible quality and it, it pains me because like mm. i want his people and this this is the same with madonna too but like we always want our people to get these things these these artifacts of history uploaded in the correct quality because i i mean they have it in like a 4k incredible scan but i hope they at least put a blu-ray out or something because that theatrical release needs to make its way to everyday consumers why do they do that? Madonna uploads things and it's in 480p and it's like, why? why would you embarrass yourself by putting that up on your own channel? Terrible. Is it true, Pez, that this album used to be called Midnight Man or was going that, to be? Yeah, that was the title that uh, Rod Temperton was sort of tasked with coming up with a title and he said he woke up in the middle of the night and was like, I know what it is, it's Midnight Man, and then said a couple of hours later, actually, that's crap. <laughs> um, so, so it was kind of I don't know if it ever made its way to Michael but um, you know as far as Rod Temperton's story goes that was what he was going to present and then obviously it sort of morphed into Starlight and then Thriller came came after that Do you know Oliver who was a backup dancer for Madonna I spoke to him recently he learned all the choreography to this and it's what yeah. inspired him to become a dancer but he said he was doing it in reverse because he was watching it off the TV and realised actually left right it needed to be whoops just bang my mic there it needed to be flipped around um oliver was going to join us for today he, at the last minute couldn't oh he had to gosh. work so that's a shame it would be interesting to know what thriller meant to him because oh. um have a feeling it meant a hell of a lot the video clip is the biggest selling video cassette ever Pretty much. I mean, it cost around when John Landis sort of priced it up and presented it to so, uh, to CBS, it cost $900,000, um, to which Walter Yetnikoff, who was a colourful character anyway, 
basically told him where to get off and put the phone down. Um, So they came up with this idea that, look, if we was to shoot the making of and sell it to TV networks and sell it as a home video, we can make up that that 900K. Um, And Michael obviously put in the difference, uh, which he then recouped. And uh, they, you know, they made possibly one of the best music videos ever it's in the national film registry in the u.s you know which means it's going to be preserved forever but it's uh you know i I just think and it almost didn't happen when you think um when he was recording uh or filming the video and the jehovah's witness uh community found out what he was doing they said if you do this you're out Mm. Um, that's why you put that disclaimer in the front right mm. well yeah i mean he he basically went to his lawyers and was like, burn this video. I never want anyone to see it. It's got to go in the bin. Um, And (laughs) his legal team were like, well, hang on a minute. (laughs) We've spent nearly a million dollars. Let's find a way around this. And that's where the disclaimer came from. Wow. Wow. I love the bit in in the video when, when, um, he turns into a werewolf, and it's not actually a werewolf, is it? It's a cat. It's a werecat. <laughs> I never knew that. I thought, it, I, but when you look at pictures, you're like, yeah, it's a cat. It's not a werewolf. At all. <laughs> what? Not yeah. purposely, though. No, yeah, on purpose. I, I could see that. Yeah, yeah. It, but was that their way of getting around the legal stuff? Is that what you're saying? No. It, so what this what it says is is that um, you assume it's a werewolf, but it's not. It's a werecat because the um, guy that did the makeup wanted to kind of do a little bit of something different because he just didn't want to do another werewolf. He said um, so. He, he thought it was going to be like a Black Panther thing, but it <laughs> ended up with like a longer hairdo and bigger ears and became a werecat. That's kind of cool, actually. What do you guys think about the album being called Thriller, though, off of this song? Because to me, the album doesn't feel like Thriller. Only this one song does. Yeah, but the meaning of Thriller in this context is so different. Thriller, to me, means, yeah, like this is an exciting piece of work. That So I think it's brilliant. And I think that the mm. the all of that sort of stuff. So they wanted a word that could go on a poster. They wanted so the girl promotion. is mine and lady in my life is thrilling to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. I love them. I think the name works perfectly because it's so um, it's so eighties. Like you can just see the kind of retro graphics behind the word yeah. thriller, but also it it's kind of how he saw the records. You know, I am a thriller, not necessarily thriller as in like the genre of film, but thriller as in I'm thrilling people. I am the ultimate thriller. Did this video clip scare any of you to death when you were a child? <laughs> yes. Did you have nightmares, Pez? I, I was terrified. You know, when when I had the cassette tape, I didn't even know about the gongs at the beginning of Beat It because I used to stop it before the evil laugh at the end and then flip yes. the tape. Yes. Um, I just couldn't hear it. And I used to, you know, watch it at my mum's friend's house and we'd always hide behind the sofa, at the, you know, when he'd transform into the wear cat (laughs) (laughs) you've changed that for me forever now Um, (laughs) but yeah it was just terrifying so much (laughs) and i was watching it last night and i'm you know i was on my own and i've got to say it's still a little bit scary (laughs) not as scary as some of michael jackson's plastic surgery but it was still quite terrifying i have to say oh come on I think it's the bit at the end where you think it's all done and it's all safe, and then he turns around and he's got the horrible yellow cat eyes, and you're like, no, it's not mm. over. She's a goner. <laughs> She's going. Yeah, it's horrible. 
All right. Um, go on um, there, Lee. Give, give us this Vincent Price. Oh, you want me to do it? Oh, right. Okay. He says... Um, well, a little bit of it. A little bit of it. Okay. Okay. Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. Creatures crawl in search of blood to terrorize y'all's neighborhood. <laughs> Big everyone! Huge round of applause for Lee to make up for his childhood mishap. <laughs> Don't hit your head. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to crash my head against the keyboard. It's fine. We love you, it's Lee. Fine. Woo! It's taken decades, but we've healed that wound. We've healed it. <laughs> Sometimes amateurs know best, and a lack of professionalism is all you'll hear on the Time to Talk show. Join Tim and his panel of guests as they wade their way through a range of news, music, and pop culture treats. Time to Talk, the show hosted by amateurs for unprofessional listeners. Beat It is track number five. And this is the only one that I don't like, even though I can see it's a perfect song. It's just um, when things veer from pop into rock for me. Um, and apparently they had real, what are they called, Crips and whatever, real gang members in the video clip itself, which oh, hopefully wow. security kept them well away from Michael Jackson while they were filming it. The jacket is incredible here. Um, I see why this is incredible. It's just a little bit too hard to the ear for me. Beat it, Pez. Well, obviously it opens with those gongs, which I discovered many years later. Um, which are actually just uh, stock demo tracks. So when they bought the Synclavier for the studio, it comes with like a you know a stock library, oh and those God. those gongs are just on the on the vinyl for the stock library. And they were like, "Oh, that sounds good. Let's put that on the record." Oh, how funny! So and weirdly, I've noticed they use them in uh, in Australia on Lego Masters, <laughs> oh. um, just in a different sequence. But it's exactly the same gongs. Um, I was watching it, thinking, "Oh my god, they're going to drop in to beat it." They didn't. I just um, love the fact that Pez is watching Australian Lego Masters all the way <laughs> over there from the UK. That's awesome. Um, and it was so originally it was meant to be Pete Townsend um, who did the guitar solo. And then Pete couldn't do it, so he said to to Quincy, "Oh, you know, what about Eddie Van Halen?" And Michael sort of really wanted Pete Townsend, but said, "Okay, you know, let's let's bring Eddie in." And then Eddie went down, and again, the rest is history with that because I couldn't imagine anybody else doing that part. I'm all about the jacket. I own the jacket, a replica, and um, <laughs> I've worn it many times. Uh, I love it. I, I think it's exactly what this album needs. This type of music. I get that it's skewed more rock, but it's also very like the pop rock of its time. Like with the, you know, um, I still think it's very danceable, even though it's, you know, as you say, rock. But um, no, I love it. I mean, it's one of my favorite songs. If Simon was here, he'd be talking about the choreography because this is pretty awesome choreography in, in this one, isn't it, Lee? Oh yeah, he would be. I think he could do it. Um, I I I wonder if because it's like you're saying it's very rock, like like prog, pop and rock mixed together. I'm gonna Ooh. I'm gonna copyright that. Um, I wonder if he kind of <laughs> thought enough. right, this is gonna sound amazing in stadiums. So let's have some like tracks that are really beefy 
guitar-driven tracks. I don't know. I'm just kind of wondering that. Um, the other thing is that it kind of... I loved it. And then, what was that guy that did that re- that um, skit of it, Eat It? Um, Weird Al. Weird Al, yeah. And then he, and that kind of ruined it. I was like, oh, you've spoiled it now for me. One of my favourite moments in the beat short film, which I only noticed, somebody pointed it out to me on Twitter recently, right at the end when they're doing the dance sequence, one of the dancers is going the wrong way. So they're all <laughs> they're all dancing in one direction, and this other dancer just starts going the other way, realises he's got it wrong, and then goes back the other way. And I've never noticed it, but it's so oh. obvious now. When oh, you watch no. it, you'll see it. You'll have to, <laughs> we'll have to put the time frame in our, in our comments section so that people can humiliate the poor man. <laughs> <laughs> what a shame they left that in, hey? Going back to Thriller really briefly, is it true that they aired that at cinemas so that it could um, qualify for an uh, an Academy Award? I think there was some um, intent to put it in cinemas, but I know that Sony, again, sorry, CBS, um, ruined it. So John Landis had come up with this idea to put it in cinemas, but CBS saw the marketability of having it as a home video, so they went and gave the home video to as many different companies as they could to air the making of and the thriller video, so it didn't get the cinematic release. Yeah, fair enough. But it did later on, right, Pez? Yeah, I got to see it in 3D in London uh, three years ago, and it was phenomenal i mean there was a bit of controversy because they changed the audio um but then i think when it hit sydney it did london first then it went to sydney and when it was in sydney it was the correct audio again so they'd taken the feedback on board that you don't mess with thriller track six billy jean was it the first video from this um project pez yeah, I think that it cost about, I think they gave sort of a quarter of a million dollars for this, okay. uh, whereas when you think CBS gave $100,000 for, for Thriller, so by that point they were exhausted, but 250000 was the sort of budget. Um, and, you know, to me, in terms of legacy with, with Billie Jean, it's not about that video. It's about Motown 25. I don't think anyone who thinks of Billie yes. Jean thinks of that horrible leather tuxedo, that pink ruffle shirt and that red bow tie. I mean... Oh, I don't. <laughs> I still wear that. I'm sure you do, and I hope you're wearing it now. <laughs> <laughs> Too early. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, they made 91. Bruce Swedean did 91 mixes of Billie Jean. Wow. That's how much, you know, that's how much time they spent on that record. Um, it's just... If, I think if you could encapsulate Michael Jackson's success, you'd just say Billie Jean. Um and he was very aware of that. He told his his costume designer, he said to him, the day I pass away, please do not put me in the single white glove because that's Billie Jean. It's not me. What does it mean to you, Lee? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be controversial. I can take it or leave it. I don't mind it. It's not one of my favourites. Um, yeah, it, yeah. That, yeah, I can't really say much more about it. I did, you know, when it first came out, I was disappointed that when I walked down the street, the paves, pavings didn't light up the way that they did for Michael. Um, but, you know, we live. Again, with like, the kid is not my son. She says that I'm the one, but the kid is not my son. It was just kind of like that machismo, like assertive, like uh, mm-hmm. womanizer type stuff that, it's just an aspect of him that I just don't understand why he why he did. But um, and I always kind of misunderstood those lyrics too. 
Um, my name's Chad, so I always thought he was he was saying Chad is not my son when I was a little <laughs> kid. So I loved that. But um <laughs> Chad. Yeah. Chad is not my son. Oh I can Did you have that. conversations with your parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> hey Pez, this was based vaguely on a true story though, obviously. And I know most people listening would know the story that this was based on the types of <clears throat> girls that were fanning around the Jacksons when he was young. But this whole, you know, someone saying that they're pregnant, like, is it based loosely on a true story? Yeah, I mean, Michael said himself that it's, you know, like you say, based on sort of the, the people that were hanging around the Jacksons. But, there, you know, there is sort of another story. I don't know whether it's urban legend or whether there's any truth to it, but uh, a lady came forward claiming that he was the father of one of her twins, um, which is I didn't even know was possible, um, and reportedly sent him a gun in the post and said, "You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna kill myself. I want you to do the same." Mm. Um, and she sent him a photo of herself. And Michael became so distressed. Obviously, you know they got the uh, the police involved, and the woman was sectioned. Um, and Michael kept the photo of this woman uh, to remind him about you know the levels of fame and and how you know how dangerous it can be and that's apparently one of the stories behind what inspired billy jean the opening beats of billy jean in the martin bashir documentary um jackson talks about it just comes down from from god and comes into his head but there's a story from daryl hall of <laughs> hall and oaks he swears that jackson confessed to him that he stole the riff from their track can't go for that which is brilliant track in itself. Um, and he even named the place where that confession was made. He said it was during the recording for We Are The World. Any news on that, Pez? Yeah, I mean, I've read that as well. And when I hear, can't go for that, I can hear it. You know, I can hear the the similarities. Um, I mean, Daryl Hall also said that Michael said a load of stuff to him about Billie Jean backstage at Live Aid. Michael wasn't even at Live Aid. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how, you know, if there's any truth to that. Um, it, it does annoy me. You know, you mentioned those those beats at the beginning of um, Living with Michael Jackson. It does annoy me when he's asked about it and he just says, you know, up above. I'm like, no, I need more than that, I'm afraid. Which yeah. is really fascinating because Michael Jackson was quite obs- much smarter than he would allow himself to be presented as, actually. I don't know what that was all about. I think it was part of his mask. But he was very thrilled and excited about the anatomy of many other brilliant artists, like literally painters and musicians. He wanted to know the anatomy of their craft, yet he wouldn't talk about it in length, except when he was in some legal battles, I noticed. He was still (laughs) sketchy about it. But did you see him a few times, Pez, in different... I don't know if they're called depositions or witness box, but when he's talking about how the girl is mine, for example, I think is one he spoke about, how it came about. But listening to him talk about how his songs came to him, yeah, yeah. It wasn't yeah, I, wonder, I have to say. I wonder if it was, you know, if he thought that he didn't want to sort of give away the tricks of the trade or, or share his, his secrets. But no, it definitely is always a, a thing that... I know, I know a journalist friend of mine in the UK who always sort of gets really angry about this and says, like, you know, every time he's asked, he just sort of says, oh, you know, I get it from God and that's it. He's like, mm. I want to know more. Um, or in and, fact, and I think he got it from a 70s did. album that was a bit obscure at the time. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I think he did wonders with it wherever he got it from. And I think just, you know, sort of touching on Motown 25 again, it's just such a moment 
um, in his life and career. The jacket, for example, was his mum's jacket. He took it from her wardrobe. Um, It's just one of her jackets that was hanging. He's like, I'm having that. Um, You know, the glove was first worn to conceal the uh, vitiligo that was appearing on his hand. So he put the one glove on and that's what concealed that. You know, he took elements of of Bob Foss uh, dance steps and incorporated it. And that just the whole thing was just this like coming together of him musically, visually, uh, performance, dance. And I think that's why like, you know, we're looking at it, however many years later it is, Motown 25 is just... It is kind of, you know, pop culture's moment, if you will. Is Billie Jean the the, the track of his uh, career? Sadly, yes, I would say. Um, it does. I love it, you know, sort of I, if I go out and uh, you're in a bar or a club and you get like, you know, all the current artists of today and then people drop Billie Jean and you see everybody with their arms in the air singing along and you think, have you actually listened to the lyrics? <laughs> <laughs> I love seeing that. You know, everyone's kind of like partying away like, yes, you know. And you're like, go listen to the lyrics. It's not the party tune you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, for poor people like Chad, they actually think it's all about their, you know, their heritage. <laughs> That's means right. Yeah. Okay. Track number seven, Human Nature, was not written, I believe, certainly by him. I think this is one of the, the Cattle Call songs, isn't it? And didn't it end up There's an interesting story? He didn't like a few songs that were on a demo tape tape sent to him somehow this one wasn't on it and then it was refound again it's got a bit of a backstory Pez yeah so it was um Steve Pocoro who was part of Toto that that did Human Nature um and the story goes that basically his daughter had been pushed over by a boy at school and she came home and she said you know this boy pushed me over at school and Steve said to her well it's either because he likes you or because he's not a very nice person you know that's just human nature and so he sort of wrote it down on a bit of paper and then went off and recorded this this demo and and sent it to Quincy and Quincy was like oh no don't like that get rid of it give me some other stuff so he went and just recorded some bits on a cassette tape and human nature just ended up on the other side of it at the end and uh when Michael heard it he was like I want that but they didn't like some of the lyrics so they did bring in another songwriter whose name escapes me and to, to kind of tweak some of the lyrics and and make it uh more thriller friendly um but you know the demo is out there as well sort of steve steve pakora's demo um and it's just it goes nowhere it's got no life to it bless him mm. um and it was also rejected by toto as well you know they decided as a group they didn't want to record that because it wasn't sort of stadium enough for them I love it. I absolutely love it. It's just one of those. Um, it's it's not that that bombastic, you know, thriller or beat it, but it's just a really beautiful song. Um, and you know, he's got that really high falsetto. Um, yeah, I just really love it. And I also loved the um, sample that um, was it SWV. They did a. Um, a song in the kind of early 90s that um, sampled human nature and I think he gave them permission to do it and yeah that was that was amazing as well I love this song I it's it's probably my favorite of the more down tempo songs on the album and I really think that this one in particular comes alive live way more than some of the other songs and that high falsetto that he goes into, he belts just a little bit more in concert when he's done it actually live. And I just think it's even so much more, it's so much better live even. 
It does have a very um, extended outro, that's for sure. Pez, could he sing these high notes live, or was it all tricks? Oh, no, he, he could hit it. You know, if you watch uh, This Is It, you know, even at the end of his uh, his life, he was still hitting those notes, especially with human nature. Um, and there's a great moment where he's just sort of throwing his head back and hitting that note. Um, but no, it was it was all live. I mean, you know, he took it out of the history tour, which was a shame because I think a lot more people would have loved to have seen it. But I think bringing it back again um, for This Is It, it kind of, that song always kind of resonated with him and it stuck with him throughout his career, which is interesting because it wasn't one of the bigger hits. Um, but he always kind of, you know, had a special place for that song. Definitely a fan favourite. Track eight is PWT, Pretty Young Thing. And yeah, apparently this came from a line of children's clothings or clothing, apparently, uh, something like that, called Pretty Young Thangs or something. I don't know. <laughs> Tell us about PYT. I love this track. It is funky and groovy and uh, I don't know. It's a good second last song. I love the placement as well. So Michael wrote the original um, PYT, which was kind of a really slow lullaby sounding song um and he recorded that took it to quincy and quincy was like oh no we're not doing that in in true quincy fashion um so quincy said but i do like the name pyt pretty young thing so he went off with james ingram and they wrote the version that appears on the record um and they brought janet and latoya in to do the uh you know the nana and the nas so that's that's Janet and Latoya. So that's uh, one of their their other little duets that that kind of gets forgotten. But she, you know, she loves to to say, "We first worked together. I did the PYT, na 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 na." But you know, I think it's um, I think it's one of those songs that didn't get the recognition it deserves. I'd have loved to have seen that pulled off the record and put on tour. Um, I think it would have been a real crowd pleaser, having you know, call and response sing after me and then you know the crowd singing back i think it would have been brilliant before we go to the final track of the album pez this tension between quincy jones and michael jackson do you want to give us a brief idea and insight into what that was i'm really floored by some of the comments that he's making later in life he's a very very old man now and he's not always very complimentary to my, about michael jackson so yeah what was the tension going on in in the production of thriller yeah, I mean, Quincy, Quincy's an odd one. Um, I went to an event in London in 2019. It was called, um, it was meant to be Off the Wall Thriller and Bad played back to back by different artists with a, a full orchestra. Really excited to go and see it. And then they, midway through the promotional campaign, they changed it to be Songs of the 80s. Um, and there was a big sort of controversy around it. And they managed to perform, I think, 30 Michael songs without mentioning his name once, which was just insane. But they were sort of going, you know, Quincy created Thriller. There was an album called Thriller that Quincy created. <laughs> and you just think, really? You're going on that route. Um, can I, I say, think- though, can I, I don't know. I, I agree. He's an odd one. I've always wanted to interview him because he's got a lot to say. And in a lot of interviews, mm. I see him just stop short and I think, oh, please, please, please just nudge, nudge, nudge. But they don't. I'd love to talk to him. However, Michael Jackson does get the lion's share of credit for Thriller. And one could argue, so he should. But Quincy Jones, without Quincy Jones, we don't have Thriller either, right? 
Well, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other, isn't it? You know, if you don't have one, you don't have the other. But who's the artist? It's the artist's record. Mm. Um, you know, we don't kind of put William Orbit on a pedestal for Madonna records. It's Madonna's album, and he's he. That's the job yes, of the producer. We do. Isn't it? <laughs> well, some of us do. Um, but, you know, the job of the producer is not to be the front man. It's not to be up there and be the star and be the performer. And I mm. think Quincy couldn't, as Michael's star grew, I think Quincy struggled to find that balance. Mm. You know, Michael did sort of bring him up on stage at the Grammys and say, like, you know, couldn't have done it without Quincy. And then when it got to bad, it was very much like Michael had a vision and said, I want it this way. And where Quincy was sort of saying, no, I don't think we should. Michael was like, we're doing it this way. Um, and you know, sort of the the story goes that the reason they kind of parted ways after Bad um, is because Quincy said to Michael, you know, uh, it's going towards rap and hip hop. You should really think about putting that on your music. And Michael said, no, I'll never do that. Um, and then, obviously, you know, Dangerous Album comes out and there's rap on about five of the different songs. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it just got to a point where they outgrew each other. Um, and Quincy was sort of very involved in everything outside of the album or trying to involve himself in that, and he should have just left it in the studio, I think. This track nine, The Lady in My Life, I'm going to try to hold back from gushing too much. I adore this song. I think it's absolutely beautiful. It's always controversial for fans if an artist chooses to wrap up a album with like a really soft track should they go out with a bang should they go out with something romantic it's always really hard but they've chosen a beautiful romantic song here it this is stunning to me well i gotta disagree with you i think the sequencing is, is all wrong it just it ends it on such a forgettable note i mean no one talks about the lady in my life and for an album called thriller to end it so soft i just i don't i don't understand the choice personally what would you but, um, and it's just not have... a favorite song for me like it is for you but um i'll i'll circle back to quincy real quick and say that um when i was in at university studying music production they had him come speak and um it was during a class that me and my classmates were had scheduled so I organized this big thing like, hey, if we all go together, the whole class, see Quincy talk, um, then we can't lose our perfect attendance award, which which was an award you could get um, if if you, if the teacher allows it. So I organized that and we went and I just remember it was kind of forgettable and we were all kind of disappointed. He's quite a cranky old man now. I have a feeling he might be yeah. pain. <laughs> Go on, Pez. I know what you're going to say about this. Isn't one of your favourites either, isn't it? Oh, it is. I love it. Oh, I absolutely God. love it. Thank I God. think it's, um, you know, it's one of those songs that I never listened to for years, and then one day I think as I got older and it just sort of came on, and I was like, wow, actually that's. And I think what's great about it on Thriller is it's like that hidden gem at the end because you've got you, you know we've been so overpowered over the years with Billie Jean and Thriller and Beat It. You know, the Thriller album has almost become a greatest hits in its own right. And then just on the end, you've got this lady in my life that just is there. And it's, I think people forget about it. And then when they hear it, they're like, oh, wow. You know, and it kind of takes, takes them to that moment when they first heard that record. I think it's uh, fantastic. I love the way it ends. It's just kind of, relaxed you know you're sort of chilling out and it just it just kind of ends and it i really think it fits the whole imagery of the album cover and everything where it's kind of dark and chill i think it's brilliant 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I do too. It'd be interesting to see what comments we get. People, should it st- should it stay or should it go? What's the legacy of this album, Pez? Um, well, I mean, it is the the biggest selling album of all time. Um, it will it's always very be controversial. That. The number of copies is ridiculously thrown around, isn't it? You get these. That's why in the intro I mentioned it was recognised by Guinness as the biggest selling album without putting a figure on it because the figures, yeah, especially if you hear it from Quincy or Michael or someone in his camp, they're ridiculously inflated sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I was there at the World Music Awards when Michael was awarded by Guinness World Records for 104 million copies sold. Mm. And, you know, I've always kind of been, um, look, as a fan, if if we want to say 104 million copies and he gets a Guinness World Record for it, hey, that's what we're going with. But, you know, truthfully, I think it's probably more around 66 million is the reported amount, and I'm sort of veering closer to that. I mean, when you think it's sold like 35 million in the US, you would have to assume that it's then sold, you know, something close to 80 million around the rest of the world, which when the UK has only sold two or three million copies and that's the second biggest market it just doesn't seem to stack up i mean unless you know he's sold 500 million copies in botswana then i I don't really know where the rest of these sales are coming from but like i said you know it's whether it's 66 million or 104 or 250 it's still the biggest selling album of all time it still Um, is exactly and i don't think anyone will beat that it's interesting that it's not the biggest selling in the U.S. And I was shocked. To yes, it is. I I thought it was, but <laughs> no. no. Is. So is that true or not that the Eagles? So, yeah, is um, number one. Well, so you know, it's technically the biggest selling studio album of all time because the Eagles is the greatest hits. But um, I know from from when I was in Vegas um, and I was around the Michael Jackson estate, they were actually contesting. Uh, the figures that had been reported that the Eagles had outsold Thriller because it doesn't make sense. They just found 8 million sales over like two years. And it was like, really? Well, where did they come from then? You know, so um, Thriller's sales haven't been updated. Um, So I'm sure once they do, it will then go back to the top again. I think it's a shame that young people don't get to hear this in its entirety because of streaming. You know, we don't, we listen to music and consume it so differently. But if you don't listen to this as a project, you're not going to get all the um, the beauty of it, I think. And this is one of those brilliant albums that you put on from start to finish, which Chad and I think all of us have done before this podcast. And just to relive it, it's it's wonderful, wonderful piece of work. Uh, no, I mean, I think, look, you know, if you look in 50 years' time, people will still be talking about Thriller. Um, and I think it's Michael Jackson's greatest testament. You know, it's... It's everything he accomplished in one record. And like I said at the beginning, you know, it became so big, it became bigger than him. And to be able to say, you know, that's my album, that's my legacy, I think, you know, I'd be happy dying with that as my as my uh, crown. Are you going to do a book on this one, Pez, eventually? Yeah, I mean, you know, like I say, a lot of, a lot of people who worked on Thriller have passed away or are just angry and bitter, uh, Quincy. Wow. So... I think, uh, yeah, you know, maybe not with Thriller, but plus, you know, like you said, what what more can you say about Thriller that hasn't already been said? Um, I think there's there's definitely going to be a documentary coming from from the Michael Jackson estate at some point. Oh wow! Um, 
So I'm sure they'll manage to find something that we don't already know. Yeah. And pluggables for all three of us now, Pez, where can people find some of the brilliant work that you've done before? Because you've got websites that they can go to. Where do they find your stuff? Uh, so uh, my books are available on Amazon um, or 1611.com. So that's the word 16, the number 11.com, which is the, the publisher. So you can buy it direct from there. Um, and it's also available on uh, eBay and just other online retailers. Yeah, it's brilliant stuff. And Chad, what about your album? How's it going and how can people hear that? It's going great. So it is my m- most listened to project yet. So I'm really happy about yes. that. And just Google Chad s-i-w-i-k and you'll you'll find everything that way it's a brilliant little album too i've listened to it quite a few times chat i've got my favorites that i skip to now can you believe people aren't listening to your project in its entirety anymore they're skipping to certain tracks naughty tim it's a singles world that we live in right now can't help it hey lee what are you gonna plug um, you know my fragrances, my um, <laughs> um, just generally everything. Yeah, my petite range, um, <laughs> all of that. But if you, if you would like to, to hear more of me uninterrupted, head over to www.thecud.tv and you can see me talking more drivel. It's brilliant, actually. The Cud TV is uh, what's it called? Chewing the Cud is the TV show, and it the is, Cud yes. TV is the website. It's a great little community show, and people should go and watch it. It's really fun. I put it on when I'm cleaning the house, Lee. It, that's the best way to listen to it. Hey, listen, Pez, Chad, and Lee. This has been awesome. Thank you for letting us take a trip down memory lane and revisiting the biggest album on the planet and potentially the best. Ooh, there's controversy. But thank you so much for your time. You've all been fantastic. Thank you for having us. It's been a thriller. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Somebody had to say it.